0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Paradox Free Speech and Medicine podcast. Today, I'll be reading part two of our series, Is There Harm in Harm Reduction? Once again, if you prefer to read this rather than listen to it, you can go to the original post at paradox.substack.com, and you'll get this along with the memes and visuals. Is There Harm in Harm Reduction, part two. The solution to addiction is not at the bottom of an empty pill bottle. The solution to drug addiction is unlikely more drugs. Big Pharma was a big part of creating this crisis in the first place. At minimum, it poured gasoline on a fire lit by the loss of religion, social, and community connections. Yet, of course, Big Pharma has come up with the solution, which is, surprise, more drugs. Call me Mr. Suspicious Pants, but I just don't trust them. But according to the experts TM, the best thing to do for narcotic addicts is to put them on opioid replacement therapy, ORT, in opioid replacement programs, ORPs. Methadone was the first drug used for ORT and for many decades was the only show in town. Methadone is a once a day, slow onset, slow offset narcotic that does not give the high of the shorter acting versions and is thus felt to be less addictive. But like other narcotics, methadone still blunts emotion, saps energy and likely causes increase in chronic pain over time through receptor upregulation. This phenomenon is known as narcotic induced hyperalgesia. As mentioned in part one, ORT is an odd name as it implies that the addict's problem is that he lacks opioids. But, but a few generations ago the name made more sense. Those entering a methadone program would sign a contract. They agreed to stop using other drugs, and methadone replaced the drug they were giving up. Admission to the program, continued attendance, and continuing to receive methadone was contingent on adhering to the contract. If your urine spot test was dirty, you were out. There were expectations and standards for those in the program. You weren't free to use whatever drugs you wanted if you wanted to be in the program. Freedom without responsibility equals disaster. Circa 2012, I attended a large conference where a certified harm reduction expert, TM, who ran a methadone clinic, was asked what he did when a patient failed a spot test. His answers shocked me, and I should add, those sitting around me. A dirty test was a failure of the program, not the individual, he explained. It was a sign that the dose was not high enough. If an addict was getting enough methadone, he wouldn't be using other drugs in the first place. This was when it struck me that today's ORPs are not what I learned about in the 1990s, where contracts were strict and tapering was de rigueur. I've watched this idea that giving people drugs will somehow make them use less of other drugs creep into medical practice. Circa 2021, I had an alcoholic patient come into ER in a very bad state. He had been to ER a couple of nights earlier and was given a prescription for a huge bottle of clonazepam. This is a benzodiazepine, a drug that some people call dehydrated booze, which can be used to wean people off alcohol in inpatient settings. But because its effects overlap so much with alcohol, it is dangerous when used in combination. And that's what this patient had done. Most of the bottle, enough for a big daily dose for a month or two, was already gone. The patient did survive. When I reviewed the previous notes, it was apparent that the patient hadn't solicited the prescription. He hadn't said anything about wanting to quit or taper. The physician thought that if the patient was taking clonazepam, he would drink less. Instead, the patient used both drugs and nearly died. As Julian Summers so eloquently talked about at Free Speech and Medicine 2023, keep your eyes out for an online Free Speech and Medicine event with him coming up soon. Methadone programs used to be a program with many facets. Vocational training with a view to employment, counseling for mental health issues, reconnecting with family. The active ingredients were everything but the methadone. Now a methadone, or Suboxone, program is about getting a drug every day, and little or nothing else. In a well-written City Journal article, journalist Erica Sandberg describes her experience in San Francisco, posing as a drug addict who had just arrived from the Midwest. Here is an excerpt. Every day of the week, nonprofits and churches such as Glide Memorial partner with the city to distribute drug use supplies to addicts at designated pickup points. With an empty backpack, I visited three such spots recently in a single afternoon. Through open doorways, friendly workers asked what I needed. They suggested items and eagerly gave me what I asked for needles? What size? Naloxone? Do you know how to use it? Here, let me show you. Rubber tourniquets to pop my veins, little medical cookers for my dope, sharps containers, sheets of foil and straws for fentanyl, and mounds of alcohol pads, gauze, and bandages. My backpack was soon bursting. I collected 170 needles. Not one person asked if I was interested in treatment. Not one discussed detox or gave me a flyer with listings for local 12-step meetings. No one inquired about my physical or psychological well-being. I could have any Anything I wanted, except for help getting off drugs. In Nova Scotia, as I'll go into below, there are zero government-funded inpatient abstinence-based programs for narcotic abuse and fewer inpatient options for alcoholics than in the past. This time, for sure, this is going to work. Recently, methadone has mostly been replaced by suboxone, which is a somewhat safer alternative that blocks opioid receptors in our brain and spinal cord blunting withdrawal symptoms, and by happy coincidence, it's more expensive, generating a higher profit for Big Pharma. Experts, TM, explained to me that changing from methadone to suboxone would cause overdose deaths to plummet. I think you can guess what has actually happened. Although there's no doubt that both methadone and suboxone can mitigate the cravings that withdrawal causes, they do nothing to address the root causes of addiction. And used alone, they do nothing to help an individual move past addiction and into the sober, meaningful life that lies beyond. Thomas Sowell said, Sometimes it seems as if there are more solutions than problems. On closer scrutiny, it turns out that many of today's problems are a result of yesterday's solutions. The abandonment of abstinence as a North Star Despite the failure of ORPs, Increasingly, they are the only tool in the healthcare practitioner's tool chest here in Canada and elsewhere, as I understand it. Over the years, healthcare overlords have increasingly abandoned abandoned funding abstinence-based programs, ABPs, those that are focused on helping patients get off drugs rather than just replacing them with a purportedly less harmful alternative drug. Most ABPs also involve reintegrating into the community, be it through finding a job, having a sponsor in the community, reconnecting with family, finding a group home, a church, whatever. ABPs are organized on the belief that sending a person directly back into the same environment and circumstances that stimulated him to be addicted in the first place will likely torpedo his chances of staying sober, even if we do give him methadone or suboxone, an ORP. Harm reduction, including needle exchanges, supervised injection sites, shelters, ORPs, and safe supply, have replaced abstinence-based programs. These interventions are more left-brained and mechanistic, with no need to bring in all that controversial spirituality or God forbid religion, which were the foundation of success in 12-step programs. Governments appear to be doing something to fix addiction when they run harm reduction programs, while at the same time, the death toll increases. These programs give hard data for proponents to use to argue that they are working. The number of needles you give out, The number of people on methadone the number of people retained in programs can easily be counted very important for the bean counters that abound in our overly bureaucratized healthcare system but not everything that could be counted actually counts when traveling recently i picked up an old-fashioned local print newspaper there was a front page article announcing the fantastic successes and expansion of the local harm reduction program in the article the director touted the number of patients on methadone and suboxone increased staffing at the center, and the huge number of free needles they had given out in the prior year. More than the year before, wow, the program was clearly a success. Not once in the article was there any mention of how many overdose deaths had occurred that year. I looked it up, it had increased greatly in that area. And not once was it mentioned how many, if any, of their clients had become abstinent, gotten off the street, or found jobs. Nowhere could I see evidence that this program had actually helped anyone in a meaningful way and for anyone who walked around the city, it was clear that the problems of homelessness and addiction had objectively worsened. Goodhart's Law, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. Thomas Sowell and others have talked about how government-funded programs, although often started with the noble goal in mind, quickly morph into entities that are mainly focused on their own survival, growth, and enrichment. Free needles and drug-free people are not the same target. Program directors and politicians patting themselves on the back for the former while ignoring the latter as it worsens is frustrating to watch and is a perfect demonstration of Goodhart's law. Giving out drugs is lucrative. Doctors make big money doling out daily doses of drugs such as methadone and suboxone. This creates a perverse incentive where physicians want as many people on methadone and suboxone as possible. Cha-ching, ching I have had numerous addicts tell me that they asked to taper off their ORT and have been directly told not to do so because it would be dangerous. Dr. Bonnie Henry, Chief Medical Officer of Health of British Columbia, recently said, and I quote, Abstinence is an important treatment modality for people who have addictions to alcohol, but it does not work for those with opioid addiction because it is a chronic relapsing brain disease and we know that abstinence is, especially in the ways we did it with alcohol, just doesn't work for people who have dependency on opioids. It's important to mention that there are thousands of ex-opioid addicts who strongly disagree with Dr. Henry's view. A doctor friend of mine took a methadone prescriber's course recently. Being logical, old fashioned, and innocently naive to the new dogma in addiction medicine, she asked about tapering. The expert TM running the program tut tutted. You could never take an addict off methadone, she explained. It would be like taking a diabetic off their insulin. She was told that addiction is a lifelong disease that can only be treated by replacement and harm reduction. In many provinces, addiction specialists who run ORPs are among the highest paid physicians. For instance, a CBC article from Newfoundland details how two of the highest 10-paid physicians in that province run methadone clinics. One bills $1.6 million per year, the other only $1.2 million. This is many times more than a regular old family doctor can manage to bill. It's also far more than your neurosurgeon earns, and he trained for eight extra years beyond med school and has to be ready to get called in at 3 a.m. to do a delicate emergency operation on your brain. Abstinence-based programs are not a panacea, but they should be an option. Why were abstinence-based programs abandoned? Well, here's my understanding. These programs are expensive. Many patients fail, many relapse. Being sober is hard. Those who work in these programs are poorly paid for a difficult and emotionally taxing job. It's much easier just to hand out opioid replacement therapy. Currently, if you're an addict in Nova Scotia and you want help, the only help I can get you is to refer you to start an ORP. And unlike something like cancer treatment or a referral to neurology, there's no way to start on opioid replacement. On the other hand, if you want to get off drugs, there are currently no government-funded inpatient or residential programs. If you want one, you'll have to search around yourself for a handful of community-led residential ABPs. The ones that I know are always begging and scraping to find enough money to keep the lights on. If you want to donate, for just one example, check out Talbot House in my home of Cape Breton. There are some excellent and highly regarded residential programs like Homewood, which you can access if you or someone you know has 10 or 20 large burning a hole in your pocket. The Spectre of Withdrawal This may seem like an aside, but I believe the exaggeration of the difficulty and danger of opiate withdrawal contributes to the move away from abstinence and is part of the push to go all in on harm reduction. I highly recommend the book Romancing Opiates by Theodore Dalrymple, aka Dr. Anthony Daniels. You can't go wrong with any of Dr. Daniels' books, by the way. I think he is perhaps the most brilliant writer of our age. I'll give you a substack length version of his book here. Nowadays, we talk about withdrawal from opioids as something cruel, inhumane, dangerous, and possibly deadly. We keep people on narcotics and ORPs for long periods of time, sometimes for life, and if we taper at all, we do it extremely slowly. Opiate addicts are given the impression that they can't stop on their own and, in fact, to do so would be dangerous. They get tied into potentially counterproductive ORPs that are expensive for the taxpayer and, coincidentally, highly profitable for the physicians who run them and for Big Pharma. Movies like Train Spotting and other pop culture depictions of opiate withdrawal helped make it the boogeyman it has become. The problem is this story is wrong. Opiate withdrawal is no doubt very difficult. gooseflesh chills, sweats, diarrhea, vomiting. I've seen it many times, and it ain't no picnic. But pure opiate withdrawal is not medica- medically dangerous, unlike withdrawal from other substances such as Valium or other benzodiazepines, barbiturates, or alcohol. People withdrawing from opiates sometimes feel like they want to die, but they won't. When tens of thousands of heroin addicted soldiers arrived home from Vietnam at the end of the war, the vast majority simply stopped using. They had things to do, and drug addiction had not been de- destigmatized in their families and communities. When Chairman Mao took over China and announced that all opiate addicts would be summarily executed, the vast majority simply stopped using. They preferred to stay alive. When the Beatles slash Rolling Stones slash every famous musician from the 1960s wanted to kick heroin, they sweated and shat and cursed for a weekend, often in the comfort of the Betty Ford Clinic, and then moved on with their life. I still meet many recovered addicts who did the cold jerky method. One memorable patient had lived in Ontario for years. He got a call that his mom had fallen ill and he had, come, he had to come home to Cape Breton too sweet. He bought a plane ticket for Monday. His mom didn't know that he had developed an addiction and he didn't want her to find out. He needed to be ready to look after her. He paid a friend to lock him up in his basement for the weekend with the instructions to bring me food to the basement window, but don't let me out no matter what I say. He flew home Monday morning, a little weak and unwell, but having kicked his opioid habit. When I met him, he hadn't used it in the 12 years since then. Withdrawal is a speed bump, not a brick wall. My somewhat belabored point with all this is that people can and do quit drugs when they really want to, when they're motivated, when they have something meaningful to move on to. Withdrawal is not cruel and unusual. It's a necessary hurdle that an addicted person must jump over to become drug-free. Is it better to just rip the Band-Aid off quickly? There was a very interesting study done on smoking cessation in Britain several years ago. It compared those who tapered smoking, i.e. cut down over time with the goal of getting to zero smoking, with those who simply quit immediately and dealt with the withdrawal. The result was surprising to some, but fit with my own experience with patients. Those who just quit were more successful by a significant margin. Why? Likely because those who slowly taper are actually in a mild withdrawal as long as they're tapering. They're cranky, irritable, and hungry, but are still smoking. They put up with this for many months instead of the relatively short few weeks of the same but debatably more intense withdrawal after just quitting. The chronic withdrawal is so difficult to deal with that many just say, the heck with it, and go back their original pack per day or whatever. Rip the Band-Aid off quickly or peel it off slowly and painfully. It seems like the former works better, at least for smoking. I have to wonder, do we make it harder for people to become narcotic abstinent by slow drug tapers? Are we prolonging their agony in a vain attempt to avoid ultimately unavoidable withdrawal and discomfort? Slow tapers or no tapers and ongoing attachment to ORPs may also unintentionally make it harder for a person wanting to achieve a sober lifestyle to do so. Having spoken with hundreds of patients over the years who have have overcome addictions, there is one common refrain, stay away from other users. If you quit smoking last week, don't go to a party and hang around with your three friends who all smoke. If you quit alcohol, don't head to a party with your friends who like to drink. If you want to stay off drugs, don't hang around with other people who are using. Help centers and shelter projects like those planned for cities like Halifax, Sydney and Moncton here in the Maritimes of Canada by Nature Warehouse addicts. Interestingly, surveys have shown that addicts themselves don't want this either, as they recognize that finding a supportive environment away from other drug users is best for them personally. Integration into non-drug using environments, not enforced cohabitation and constant contact with other drug users is what a person needs to be sober and regain a meaningful and healthy life. Do harm reduction programs really help or do they enable users to continue their habit thus increasing risks overall. Stay tuned for part three of Is There Harm in Harm Reduction?